0: Listener-supported, WNYC Studios.
1: This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. I'm Rachel Neal.
0: And I'm James Ramsey. New York, 1922.
2: When Shakespeare said, clothes maketh the man, what he was really saying was that The way that you present yourself by adorning yourself, by costuming yourself every morning speaks reams about who you are.
0: Rachel, what do our outfits say about our place in the world?
2: I think our outfits say
1: we might be in a non-smoking studio, but at least we can wear our smoking jackets.
0: We absolutely can. That clip we just heard was Catherine Martin. She is the costume and production designer for a lot of Baz Luhrmann's movies. They most recently made The Great Gatsby. And you've probably also seen Moulin Rouge and Romeo and Juliet. Real knack for the glamorous stuff.
1: Yeah, I've seen all those movies. And I also found out that she's his wife. Here they are talking about being a working couple.
3: Well, I think the secret is to fight as much as we do.
2: Yeah. Which well, that's what I was going to say. But see, he jumped in before I would had a chance I stole to her best answer. line. You stole my line. It'll be 26 years at the end of this year. Really? Yeah. So first of all, I do not know that. Yeah. I know. It's an awfully long time. <laughs> I'm not a numbers guy. Do you know that I have been, I will have been with Baz longer than I was alive before I met him? On today's panel, Catherine will be without Baz. Baz. <laughs>
1: She'll teach us how she makes things pop on screen and, most importantly, what I want to know, how she makes money doing it.
0: She'll be talking to Vogue editor-at-large Hamish Bowles, who, fun fact, keeps over a thousand costumes that he's collected in a storage facility in Queens. And he also threw himself a Gatsby-themed 50th birthday party.
1: Okay, two things. One, that's awesome. And two, these are people who really need to get together. Let's listen in.
3: It gives me enormous pleasure to introduce Catherine Martin to you today, uh, or should I say CM, as she's known by by almost everyone. Um, CM is a, a, a distinguished and continually inspirational film stage and interior designer who's been garlanded with four Oscars, five BAFTAs, and a Tony Award, among many other honors. She was Glamour Magazine's 2013 Woman of the Year for her production set and costume designs, and was inducted into the Rodeo Drive Walk of Style for her work on The Great Gatsby. Uh, CM studied theatre design at Sydney's uh, National Institute of Dramatic Art, whose fellow alums have included Kate Blanchett, Judy Davis, Mel Gibson, and Baz Luhrmann. When CM started the programme there, Baz had recently graduated in direction and acting and was looking for young Collaborators, as we'll hear later, a resulting meeting between the two was to prove the beginning of a professional and private relationship that continues to thrive to this day, has produced uh, 11-year-old Lillian, 9-year-old William, and a great many other very beautiful children. (laughs) Among them, movies including 1992's Strictly Ballroom, 1996's Romeo and Juliet, 2001's Moulin Rouge, 2008's Australia, and 2013's The Great Gatsby as well as the sensational production of La Boheme for Australian opera that was later adapted for Broadway, and shorts and advertising projects for prestigious clients, including Chanel and the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Costume Institute, projects that reflect CM's continuing engagement with and celebration of the fashion world. A love affair, I might add, that is entirely reciprocated. Um, The couple's latest baby is the Netflix series The Get Down, charting the birth of the hip-hop scene in the South Bronx, Uh, in the late 70s. In addition, the indefatigable CM has worked on interior design projects, including the Fitzgerald suite, the Plaza Hotel. She divides her time between Paris, New York, and Sydney. And I'm delighted that she's here with us today, taking a respite from the get down to share her world and her process with us. Let's have a little glimpse of that world. Um, um, I'm wondering if we can begin our conversation by talking about what got you initially into the world of costume design, as it was initially.
2: I, as a kid, was always fascinated by clothes, most particularly historical clothes. So I was the kind of nerdy kid that... My, my mother's French, and um, my father's an Australian, and they met in Paris in 1956... And um, my father's a French academic, and they um, met in student accommodations and eventually um, came back to Australia, where we grew up the majority of the time. But we did go backwards and forwards to Europe very often because my father is a specialist in 18th century French literature. And um, his claim to fame, along with an American and an English colleague, who is now no longer with us, Um, they wrote the definitive bibliography of the 18th century French novel. Um, And he's still working on it 50 years later. Um, And anyway, we used to come backwards and forwards and I remember being the nerdy kid who would beg for my parents to take me to the Victoria and Albert Museum and go through the costume section over and over and over again and um, my grandmother in Australia was a staunch Presbyterian, and every once in a while the ladies of the church would get out sort of dubious vintage clothing of dubious provenance and put it on and do a historical fashion parade, and I was always front row, clapping. I just thought it was the most wonderful thing I'd ever seen. So I think it all starts from loving clothes and loving the history of clothes... Um, yes, and, and loving the glamour and make believe of
3: what clothes can do for you
2: mm.
3: and that led you to the National Institute of
2: Dramatic Art.: Yes, I, I was always a very kind of arty, crafty kid. I did all of the really bad crafts that you can do, you could do in the 1970s from cold enamelling to candle making. I did a lot of uh, copper repoussage, which is a lost art. Um, (laughs) It involves mainly doing things like whales with water spouting out of their head and you use a paddle pop stick and push it out from the back and then you fill it with wax. It's divine. (laughs) A lot of macrame potholders. Um, And we never had indoor plants, so they were rather useless. I um, Also, there was a craze in the 70s to um, cut up the bags that bread comes in and knit it into all kinds of things, completely useless things. Um, And from that, I thought I wanted to be a fine artist and I went to a very prestigious school in Sydney, and I just realised I was not made for being in a garret by myself, and I kind of didn't have very many original ideas, or so it seemed when I was 17. And so I dropped out. Um, my parents were very disappointed. They wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I became apprenticed um, to an Australian fashion, hound, ha- a fashion house as a sample hand, and I sewed for a living and made samples Um, I'd really sewed all my life I'd worked at the sewing machine since I was six and then um, I was listening one day on the radio I'd been involved in school plays my parents had always taken me to the theatre and to the opera and to the ballet so I was very familiar with it And um, I heard an ad on the radio, I was working some overtime and they said it's international youth year and we're looking for a set and costume designer and I applied, I think I was the only person that applied so I got the job (laughs) and um, from then on I thought, oh, this is what I want to do and I decided to audition for NIDA and I was very lucky, out of you know a thousand people I was one of seven people that got in that year, so that was very lucky.
3: Mm. And uh, you were explaining to me that uh, 1988 was the Australian bicentennial, and as yes. a result, Baz Lerman, who'd recently graduated from the same um, school, um, having majored in direction and acting, uh, had received some uh, government funding to work on some projects. What kind of things was...
2: So he had, um, within the Australian Opera Company, he had his own small company called the Ra Project. So it was funded to go for a year and basically he was funded to compose and devise a sort of a new opera. I think the opera company always called it a music theatre work because there are all these kind of pretentious distinctions that you can't have talking in opera. It has to be completely sung. So we had some talking. If you know Baz, you know why they had to be talking. Um, There's not enough time in a song to get out everything um, that he would need to communicate. And then he also was awarded his own theatre company. um, Within the Sydney Theatre Company, he had to produce three plays. Um, And he was looking for um, people to collaborate with that were uh, sort of fresh and new to the world and... um, At the end of your second year at NIDA, you put well. The second years have an exhibition, and you have to show all the models that you've made of various sets, and put up all your costume drawings. And he saw what I had done and what Angus Strathy, who was my co-costume designer on both um, Strictly Ballroom and Moulin Rouge, and um, he liked what we did, and so he asked us. Well, actually, he saw what we did um, because the woman who ran NIDA at the time, the administrator, had seen... um, You also do another thing in second year at NIDA, which are these group device shows. And I'd been the director of one group device show where I got eaten by a fridge. (laughs) And he had done Strictly Ballroom in his slot as the group device thing. And she had said to him, oh, there's a girl you need, you need to meet. She's as wacky as you are. She got eaten, a frid- she got eaten by a fridge last week in the group devised things. And then he started calling me and leaving messages on the answering machine and saying, hi, it's Baz here. And I was thinking, who's got a name like Baz? Is he that idiot that did Strictly Ballroom? Oh, I'm, I don't want to do flashy musicals. I just want to be a serious artist and do Ibsen and Chekhov and, you know, opera. Like, I'm just not gonna get... Anyway, eventually I picked up the phone and um, I, um, we made a meeting and I w- went to see him. And how did that go? What did well, you discuss? Well, we, um, I was late because I'd made an outfit to go. And I was still sewing on the buttons. Um, there was a bit of hand finishing to do on it and I was running behind. And um, so I was like 10 minutes late and I'm in King's Cross, which is sort of, I suppose, it was, used to be the red light district in Sydney. It's not really anymore. I mean, there are a few dubious establishments, but it was where sort of everybody in the, it really became the red light district in the 60s and 70s when People were coming to Sydney for R&R from the Vietnam War and um, he had an office which was an above an old brothel and I was standing there buzzing going, oh, damn, I'm late and I've tanked the interview and I was very preoccupied by this and all of a sudden I felt the hand on my back and I just screamed and I turned around and there was Baz and his, I didn't realise it at the time, but his best friend and co-writer on so many of the projects, Craig Pierce, both in towels. They'd just been for a swim. And they were barefoot in the middle of King's Cross in a towel. Well, they weren't wearing the same towel. <laughs> they each had one. But I kind of went, oh, I get it, theatrical types. <laughs> and then we went up and we started talking and we discussed everything from Madonna to this giant concrete sheep that they have, which is quite an edifice when you see it, and its merits as opposed to some of the extraordinary um, buildings like Notre Dame. And we sort of scaled high and low culture. I think I was fed a very stale croissant. And this went on for, like, maybe four hours, and then Baz said, oh, I've got something to do, goodbye. And I was thinking, like mate, you've just talked to me for four hours. Surely I've got the job. But he supposedly had to think about it. So I was a little cranky about that. But eventually he did think about it. And um, Angus, who couldn't be there because he was working on something else, and he was um, sort of pathologically shy at the time, so I kind of had to broker the relationship. And... um, we needed to share it because there was too much work for us to do, one person to do. So he was calling you into work on everything that he was involved On everything, and that we were going to divide all the work up. And um, I remember um, saying, basically, I didn't have the first slot. So when you're in your final year at NIDA you then, the staff divides up the class and someone gets to do the sets and costumes on all the graduating productions. But because the year of actors is usually quite big, like up to 20 people, they might have a series of um, one-act plays or it might be a big musical but then there are also second-year shows that need to be serviced in terms of design. So there's a big slate of work to do. And that by that stage, I think there are only four of us left in that final year. And so, um, you know, there was a lot to do. Everything from Shakespeare... Like, there, were, uh, it's like a blur. You know, there were, like, three comedies, a Macbeth... Um, I think there might have even been an Ibsen play. um, And there was also... um, I'm just trying to remember the name of the play, but some of you might know of Jim Sharman. Jim Sharman was directing that year and he was the director of Rocky Horror Picture Show and um, uh, both Hair and... um, um, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar on Broadway and in the West End. And so that was a very prestigious gig. But I'd already said yes to Baz, so I couldn't take that. And I was kicking myself that I'd made the wrong decision.
1: (laughs) You're listening to Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more from Catherine
0: Martin and Hamish Bowles. But first, I caught up with some dapper audience members from this panel about what has them excited at this year's festival.
1: Right after I saw The Great Gatsby, I went straight down to Prada in Soho and saw the costumes on display.
0: My name is Diego. I am not a filmmaker, but I, a friend of mine she is a producer and director, and she last night actually we were talking about movies, and I told her that my interest would be in costume design, and she's like, "Well, tomorrow has a, a panel, and you should go." And then I just came. And uh, so, so has the
3: has the process with Baz the way you approach a project, has it remained the same? I mean, has, it, has that evolved? And what is the process? How does it all
2: work? Look, Baz is a visualist as a director. So he always um, has an idea about how he imagines something will look and feel and sound. And he always um, is tearing, you know, pictures out of magazines or sticking things into his diary. He always has kind of, I suppose, those um, key images that will spark a whole project for him. So he very much comes to the table with um, a kind of a, a, a visual starting point. That's not to say that I sometimes... You know, vehemently disagree with <laughs> the visual starting point or whatever. But it's through that process of kind of, I get to walk into this incredible mind where sometimes he, he's talking to you and you're just thinking, I just have no idea how we're going to do that. But we only have $50. <laughs> you know, like. And But the thing, the challenging and beautiful thing is is that you have to listen and you, your job is to understand from looking at the pictures and listening to the person what they're really saying and then look at the resources and translate that into those things and what that might become might be different from what is first imagined but nevertheless, you've fulfilled your brief. Um, And Baz is a very, you know, he's very rigorous intellectually about um, all the worlds that he creates being um, complete and self-contained and that the rules that we set for every world, that you maintain them and that you, um, you know, you judge each piece of work by that particular set of rules So, you know, I don't know. Let's say there's a character called Mr Smith and he's a certain type of person and he always has to be wearing something stripy for some unusual reason. You will have to be able to justify why he's wearing that stripy hanky this day but the striped socks the next day. There's a lot of... um, And... If you're working within a period context, you have to be able to justify your choices for the story. And everything is about serving the story and trying to be as clear as possible for the audience, giving the audience clues and helping them understand the story. So um,
3: once you've had the kind of initial discussion process and you're going through thematics and things, then do you do the same thing of pulling tear sheets and visual images and, and, how does, and, and where are you looking for that material?
2: So um, a lot of the time that um, research period will coincide with the script writing process and Basil say, I have a scene set in, um, I don't know, um, in an abandoned warehouse in the South Bronx. I mean, that's a very banal thing. But our job will be to do as much. Um, I need images so that I can actually flesh this out in a very real way. Or it might be someone's apartment. How could this apartment... What We have this very happy family. They need to be in a happy apartment. They're still as poor as this other family, but they're a sad family. Find me two separate kinds of accommodation one that's happy one that's sad but in the same socioeconomic um you know they're both in the same socioeconomic bracket but the but the how you know the the architecture actually speaks to the characters you know general malaise and you go okay right and so you we do a lot of um, The Library of New York is very helpful because they have that incredible small pictures files where you can just go and look through that. A lot of books, particularly for social history, um, where you're digging into periods that people aren't very... Well, they're interested in, but they're not interested in the things that as filmmakers you need. So, for instance, on both Australia... And also, um, on the get-down, you have to do a lot of detective work because things like, which seems stupid, but we had a lot of Aboriginal stockmen. And now it seems obvious to me that, of course, they would never have worn socks with their riding boots. But, you, you know, that kind of thing you can only find out by going and sitting under the tree with an elder who actually was alive in the late 40s, and you said, did anyone wear socks? And he goes, socks? And that seems unimportant, but it becomes... You know, you wanted to be as authentic as humanly possible. And similarly, in The Get Down, a lot of it is also oral history from people who were there. What was the meaning of wearing an AJ? Why did you care about... um, what did Converse mean to you? What were B boys' favourite shoes? Um, what what made a pair of suede Pumas uh, in nineteen seventy seven really desirable? And all those things need to be decoded in non-traditional ways, by interviewing people, talking to them, um, visiting the places um, in a pilgrimage, doing you know a South Bronx tour or going up north as it was in Australia and doing the research. Um, The internet is an incredible resource. Um, Reading novels that are set in a particular period are very helpful. Um, Autobiographical material. um, And you have to make the pictures up in your mind, you know. And it's good sometimes too, I think, to have the written material and the image because if you look at an image of what someone looked like in the late 19th century, a can-can dancer. They looked like a, you know, I don't know, like a frowsy old granny, you know, granny gone bad. And you then read the experience. I read a lot of guidebooks, American guidebooks to Paris or travelogues. These seem to be very popular in the late 19th century. And it would be descriptions of people's night out in the Moulin Rouge and when you heard about what it actually felt like to be there the image and the description didn't match because our modern-day connotations of the experience don't equate with the image. Similarly, um, you know many times you look at a beautiful airte drawing and then you see the, sh- the showgirl in the costume and you just go, what happened? <laughs> Do you know? And it's not that Eite's vision... You know, it's just that reality and fantasy and how people think about things... Just think about it in normal day life, how you'll go out on the town and you'll be in a nightclub and you'll think how great you look and so much fun and then you take all these digital pictures of yourself and then you look at them in the morning and you go, delete, delete, delete. But what it felt like was amazing, and I think that's part of storytelling, is it's not only good enough to replicate the image. You must support the story by allowing the audience in, into how it felt to actually be there.
3: In, in terms of storytelling, I'm just going to ask you about a very specific thing that really struck me in Gatsby, which is that um, um, Gatsby himself hosts two parties within the um, uh, within the story, and the first one is um, high voltage glamour, and everyone is absolutely immaculate. and And then by the second party, there has been a complete kind of disintegration, and there's a, a seediness has crept in, and the the costuming is suddenly very different. What was the what was the process, I mean, what's the sort of thought process and the,
2: behind a concept like that and how do you get there? So Baz felt very strongly that the first party needed to be seen through Nick's eyes as the most, and be true to the descriptions in the book, that it was, you know... It was champagne and stars and yellow cocktail music and everyone was sophisticated and beautiful and that he was entering... Baz used a reference. He said it's like The Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch. And then when you get to the second party, um, he said this is... You're getting... Basically, in the book, it's towards the end of the summer and they do have a description where the kind of, the crowd that's coming, it's just kind of, you know, everything is becoming frayed at the edges. But what Baz wanted was for you to see it through Daisy's eyes so you realised what she was seeing, that there was a certain um, vulgarity and um, kind of tawdriness about the whole affair and that it, because Daisy was seeing that you've got Gatsby being kind of undone by it because he realises, you know, he starts to see things in a different way as does Nick and um, Baz showed us lots of images by Otto Dix and there's nothing, you can't get much seedier <laughs> when you see the party scenes that are described in the period he painted a cont- contemporaneously um, and it's very fun to do because you get to make really clear palette choices that are completely different and you have to remember um, and Baz wanted a lot of the same people so he wanted an influx of new people in the second party so you saw that it wasn't totally the same crowd but he also wanted a large pool of the extras at the party to undergo a disintegration so um, you had to we had to make t- a lot of co- like two costumes for a lot of the guests so that you actually got them s- to see them sort of before and after right. as it were
3: uh, you, you were speaking earlier about um, the incredible historical verisimilitude and, and and the fact that you're um, that you're scrupulously looking at period references and so on, but in a way you've also developed a kind of new genre together which mixes in um, anachronistically contemporary elements and um, you know one sees that obviously in the music choices but but also very much in the in the costuming i mean I'm thinking about um, your uh, collaboration with mutual Prada on some of Daisy's costuming in, in Gatsby and what, what's the feeling behind
2: that? I think it's for a number of reasons I think it's a deliberate um, choice to make the images and the characters more accessible to an audience you don't have the distancing of Um, reality per se because what meant something in 1923 doesn't mean the same thing today but I think it's also um, about shamelessly pursuing the feelings described in whatever text you have. So you try to transcend just being slavishly true because it might not help in the end. Does it help to see Daisy and, um, and Jordan on the couch in those huge big white linen dresses that they wore in the nineteen twenty three? which basically just look like 90s now. That's what we think, right? And in our minds all of us have already because we've seen you know hundreds of flapper Halloween costumes and we've seen old movies on the TV and we've looked on Instagram and people have Gatsby themed weddings all the time. We all have our own idea of you know what things should be. And I think what's interesting about mutual and Baz and why I thought it was a very good collaboration is because um, although mutual would say she's, you know, she only references the past she knows herself. So she only references things that she's lived through or seen before. You can see that she's incredibly cultured. She um, comes from a big, you know, she comes from a historical tradition, um, you know, historical European tradition. And in her clothes, you can see that culture, that education, being well-read, being surrounded by museums. But with her, it becomes the future. It's a very interesting thing, and it's not consciously um, trying to quote the past. Whereas, in a way, they're both trying to get to something new, both Baz and Mucha, but Baz does it by very consciously quoting the past all the time. There's a certain amount of irreverent nostalgia, if that can be a concept, and it's, all, it's about, I suppose... Um, referencing the past to get to the future. And one of the things about the 1920s is it was the future. Mm. We think of it as the past, but the 1920s really signalled the birth of the future in the 20th century because after the Great War, you basically have people completely leaving the 19th century. You know, men have been in flying machines... Um, there's been chemical warfare, Um, the cavalry as a concept is kaput because they're just mown down by machine guns. There's like an extraordinary um, psychological, technological revolution and, you know, you've got to be thinking that in the space of five years, hemlines went from to the ground to just below the knee. I mean, it's, like, unthinkable now that that would happen and people stopped wearing corsets. Um, You know, by the late 20s, women were chopping their hair off. Um, Women were smoking. Um, With prohibition, you have women going into bars. I mean, it's a huge... And I think what is great about um, Mewcha is she also embodies that... Looking, challenging who we are, looking to the future. She's also a woman, just like Coco Chanel. And in the, you know, late teens and twenties, there's a, um, a huge number of female fashion designers for the first time. Whether it's, um, you know, the beginnings of Schiaparelli or Coco Chanel, or I always pronounce them wrong, but they're two sisters, Kayo. Yes. Sisters. Um, And it just goes on and on. And you have women speaking to their peers and making clothes for them for the first time. So they're clothes that they have the experience of wearing, they understand it, and that's what Muture does. And and those women were challenging the perceptions of beauty within the culture. What's beautiful? What's modern? What's appropriate? You know... um, Coco Chanel was skinny and tanned. She used to, um, you know, before that, being tanned was a sign that you were a worker and you were out in the outdoors and everyone wanted to be white. So it's about... And so I thought that that was a really, really good connection. Very long-winded answer, sorry. And then the other part of it was to have Mutia Prada's clothes in the parties and that this would be something that obviously would be reported on, um, both Baz and I felt very strongly that it helped the audience to understand that it was that kind of party, that they were the kind of people going to Gatsby's parties, They're people that would be wearing very fancy clothes like that, that it helped place it in context.
3: And how do you, uh, so so? Carrie Mulligan is, is, is dressed thusly, and then how do you how do you dress the extras? How does the, how does that all so, work? Are you, are you designing every single
2: thing? Are you, are you finding vintage things? Are you, so, it's always good I find to look at real things, because, um, you know, it's very inspirational. It's good. You get a sense of the fabric, scale of prints, all of that.
3: And where are you going to do that kind of well, research?
2: Well, I did a lot of that in New York, actually. There are a lot of great vintage houses that will rent you things, and they know it's just to have a really good look at them and possibly be um, more or less inspired by them, sometimes more than less sometimes. Um, but remembering that we're, they're nearly 100 years old, these clothes now, and so firstly, people are a lot bigger than they used to be. Secondly, it seems almost criminal to put them through the rigmarole of being on set so, do you use some vintage things? Yes. But they're things that aren't going to get totally trashed. Um, and, you know, it'll be a shawl or it'll be like the happy coat from Western costumes that um, Mr... I always forget his name, but he, he's the photographer in the Myrtle party scene. You will use certain things to give the right tone. I'm really lucky that for basically I've had the same wardrobe department um, since Strictly Ballroom. Sometimes I do turn around and go, oh, my God, these women are old. <laughs> and then I realise that I'm as old as they are. <laughs> it's a bit embarrassing. And so I've always been very lucky because we don't have rental houses in Australia. So, so, we, so
3: you have to create your own costume department.
2: We have to make it. We have to make stuff. And so at some points, you know... On Gatsby we had up to 90 people in the wardrobe department and it'll be kind of set up a bit like an an old-fashioned sort of atelier where you'll have, um, you know, different cutters. We call them cutters, but they're the pattern makers. Um, You know, have a different style, so they're good for, you know, different people. And um, we have milliners and art finishers and people that... Um, you know, work on doing fabric repeats and printing. So we do a lot of making in-house. We hired some things, particularly workwear, that's very good coming out of America. Denim. You know, it's hard to make good vintage denim pieces. Mm. There's a certain kind of look to them. Um, Uniforms, policemen's uniforms, First World War uniforms... You probably want to get them out of... um, But mainly we make a lot. Um, And we also, you know, you have to be conscious of the budget and time. So sometimes there was a great thing, we were talking about it yesterday, um, that I discovered by looking at all these vintage houses of um, skirts, pleated skirts that were sort of sewn onto cotton tank tops and then you put a tunic over the top So we then kind of devised a number of looks that could either look like dresses or separates and could be mixed and matched. So we had a kind of a pool of... So you could
3: recycle things perhaps? Yes.
2: Yeah. And, um, you know, there's a... a, The one area that I was very naughty about from a period perspective, because I because I was brought up very much in terms of design being totally period perfect. Like when I was at NIDA, you know, the idea that you wouldn't make sure that the edge of a bonnet in an 18th century piece wasn't hand-stitched for the close-up. You know, like all the crimes I've committed, all the crimes against period that I've committed now um, are just too... There's too many to list, but, um, you know... Shoes, you know, 1920s heels can be a little stumpy. And I just think, you know, like a a shoe, just sexy shoes are just fabulous. (laughs) And I comforted myself at night by thinking all the fashion illustrators never drew a shoe this high with a big thick heel like that. They were always in heels like this that went like that. So I was well. I'm, I'm, stupidly I need to comfort myself over these things at night. I was like, oh, I'm just copying fashion illustrations. But I knew it was wrong at the time that I would be held up by the period police, who would tell me that, you know, it was all wrong.
3: And how many how many uh, design collaborators do you have on a project like that?
2: So on... um, In your team. In my team. So I had... I try to draw um, as much as I can of the principles myself, even if the illustrations are scrappy, but I find that in order to work out a lot of the technical details, it's good to at least be diagrammatic. And, And... Used to,
3: are there fluctuations in casting during the process? Oh, does like you never get the set? cast.
2: So you'll always get like three people ten years before and then you'll get 97, you know, the day they're about to... You know, two days before they're about to shoot.
3: So does that impact your... Yeah,
2: like... So... I mean, have
3: you ever had a, 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 an actress... You weren't expecting, for instance, suddenly cast in a role that's made you rethink
2: Absol- how you conceive oh, what she might wear. Absolutely. Well, look at Jordan. I never thought Jordan would be as Amazonian, Right. you know, or have as nice side boob. <laughs> <laughs> so you change to, like, you know, yes. work with what you have got. And a lot of the time we work inside out, which is... I leave the principles till last in the design process, and I start with the world because committing to the world seems less scary than committing to Daisy's costumes. And I think you get to try a lot of silhouettes and in a non kind of scary way. You can make mistakes, whatever, and it allows you to have physical discussion of actual clothes because the difference between a sketch and reality uh, is just so huge and fabric um, and how you use the fabric, you know, all those things are integral to the way that the design kind of comes together and so yeah, I, I, I I will have probably two illustrators, especially if it's on a job the size of Gatsby. Because you've got to think we've got to come up with a sketch, like maybe over 200 sketches for just one ballroom scene. And then we've got, you've got to pick the fabric. You've got to, I like to pick all the fabric myself.
3: Where do and you do I that? Like where, do you, where do you source things?
2: Well, I, I was very lucky on Gatsby because I got to fulfil a lot of dreams. Like I was able to get a lot of custom lace made by a company called Solstice. I had a lot of beaded fabrics made by them. I had fabrics embroidered in India. Um, and it was it was a luxurious process because you usually don't do that. And then I had a lot of um, stock fabrics that I bought here and... Um, that we put in what is called the cage, um, which is a lock-up. And I go into the cage. I'm locked in the cage with all the background sketches and I start putting all the fabric, all the trim. Um, I got into really big trouble because I ordered by accident $7,000 worth of Makuba trim without knowing I'd done it. Well, at least that's the story I told them. <laughs>
3: um, what is Macuba trim?
2: Well, Macuba is this fantastic uh, Japanese company that make beautiful ribbons and braids and all kinds of... Um, I, um, I have been called Inga the Trimmer is my nickname because <laughs> I love a bit of trim and I love a button. I think they're very important. So I like to pick all the fabrics myself. So I get locked in the cage with those... Um, I think buttons are very important because a button is this big on the screen because most of movies are this. That's 30% of every film is like this. And so if you're looking at a big plastic button on Leonardo DiCaprio, who's going, I love you, Daisy, I love you, and all I can see (laughs) is a plastic, big plastic button that big, it pushes you over the edge.
1: You're listening to Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more from Catherine Martin and Hamish Bowles.
2: So, yeah, so, and there'll be milliners, I would say. On Gatsby, we we had eight um, cutters, all responsible for different aspects of um, whether they would, like, for instance... um, Gatsby had his own tailor, Daisy has her own person and you divide up all the cast and then they'll have a team of sewers that sit with them and make for them. Some sewers draw a very short straw sometimes because I have some ladies who I think are a throwback to um, the 19th century and the pyjamas that Jordan wears um, appear incredibly simple but they're all cut on the bias and all these pieces with that little bit of piping are all cut separately and Cheryl Pilkington who's worked with me for years and years is a stickler for just immaculate technique and so she was making the girls they couldn't lift the pieces above the table because if you lift a bias cut piece of fabric changes the shape And so there were two of them immobile for days, just tail-attacking this whole thing together to go to a fitting. Then we'd have the fitting and the fit couldn't just be whipped out from the sides as I was, like, standing in the background. Can't we just take it in from the sides? It all had to be unpicked and all the fit had to be taken out in all the lines, the detailed line work of the thing. And I just thought, oh. And I think it ended up being, it just looks like a satin <laughs> singlet and a pair of pants with <laughs> elastic in the top. And I think it was the most expensive thing that we made on Gatsby <laughs> because of the technique used to do it. And I was going, oh, this is a bad idea. I should have just said, just cut it out and put elastic in the top, bit of a tank top, all good. But no, it had to be immaculate.
3: Um, you, you were talking about the the, um, the fragility of period pieces and yes. why that's, that's one reason why you wouldn't use them. I'm wondering if you've had any other uh, 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 moments with fallible props or... Um...
2: One just still makes me feel sick just thinking about it. Um, we were shooting Romeo and Juliet and... We were, we were shooting both in Mexico City at a studio and we also went to Veracruz for all the exteriors. And so the gas station was actually built as a set on the back lot in Veracruz, uh, no, in the back lot in Mexico City, parts of it. We went to a real gas station, only in Mexico City, um, and did and redressed the whole gas station That was Mexico City and then but for the drive out so the other direction so shooting this way we were Mexico City, shooting that way we were Vera Cruz and there was a car that had to come out behind, I can't remember whether it's Tybalt or the Capulet car and follow them down the street. Anyway we get to Vera Cruz and Baz is like where's the green car? I'm like, he never actually screams at anyone but me. He's very well behaved. He would have whispered loudly because he wouldn't want to have seen that there might have been some tension between us, going, oh, yeah, the green car. So I go to the vehicle coordinator and I go, um, where's the green car? The green car? Yes, the green car. Remember the green car? He goes, hmm... I think it's in Mexico City. I'm like, a oh, very bad outcome. <laughs> so I said to him, Do you, like, what model of car was it? And he said, well, I said, can you remember that? Because I, I have, I like the car to look right, be the right period. I like a pretty car, but really limited interest in cars. I can remember their colour. Um, And so I said to him, you better be able to remember. So I just said, we're just going to have to get cash money and just find someone on the street and get their car. Don't worry about the colour. We'll work that out in a minute. So then we just paid some guy like a 1000 bucks and just said, we need your car and we're going to paint it. (laughs) And he went, what? And I said, oh, look, we'll put... Because they tell you to do this, but I don't think it really works, but... Um, if you put milk in, in paint, you can get it off. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I remembered the colour of the car just in my mind. So I mixed the paint and then we just got everyone from the art department, any PA we could find, and we just painted the car with brushes... And, like, I'm just, like, painting, painting. Are you ready yet? Not quite yet. You know? And then the car dried as it was being driven <laughs> off. That was horrendous. We, it was just prone to mishaps. The I don't know if any of you remember or have seen the fish tank scene where they see themselves for the first time. The fish tank broke twice. Um, once because the fish man who was cleaning... Um, lent on it and it fell over and I went mm, maybe well that wasn't built to my exacting standards because it shouldn't have fallen over and then the next time it was that um, I think the thickness of the glass hadn't been calculated correctly to stand the pressure of the water so my decorator um, was standing in there and I was on the other side and I could kind of see something happening and she just was starting to look like that and what she could see was that the glass was bowing like this but, of course, in typical Bridget Brush fashion, she didn't um, run out and save herself. She was saving the antiques. So she was just kept running in and out as shards of glass were flying and she was, I was just going, are you insane? You know, save yourself.
3: So on, on that moment of insanity, fabulous insanity, we're going to um, open up for some questions, if anyone has a question they'd like to address. Yes.: Very inspiring and really very touched and very inspired by your work and, and, and who you're being. And I'm working on a project that's a, um, a mythic story that takes place in contemporary New York City with the music and art cultures, but it also draws upon um, the underground cultures in this town for the last 45 years, so I wanted to like mix and match from disco and punk and, and other elements, but I also want to have it cohesive, so any advice around that? I mean, how would you approach something that has been <sighs> one?
2: I think you've just got to be true to your story and your character, and Um, have some rules for the world like you know it is about setting up that construct what are the beliefs of the people, what um, are the rules of the game, what do they believe in do they what is a typical day what do you need to survive what's practical in the world what's desirable, and all. if you have a set of rules that you can actually refer back to, then the costumes will have coherence. Do we have
3: more questions? Yes.
2: Hi. Hi. Amazing, everything. Um, With all the use of green screen on The Great Gatsby, (laughs) I know you and Baz are pretty have the same look of what you want, but how could you be sure to achieve what you wanted? You worked on the post-production? Or? Yes. Um, so Baz won't shoot on a green screen unless he knows what it's going to look like at the end. So we spent a lot of time within the art department ourselves um, pre-visualising and producing the look for all of the set extensions. Um, and on Gatsby, I, ha- I kept on um, um, a visual effects art director because, to me, that is becoming a position that is more and more needed within a department because you design the whole thing You don't just design the little bit that you're seeing. We designed the whole of the uh, Gatsby Mansion. Baz wanted to know where the kitchen was, where the bathrooms were. It's impossible for him to get to his room through that tower and where is that window in relation to the windows in the room? And we went, well, Baz, come on. (laughs) But we had to do that. So it's a real place with real place for cars and a logical floor plan. You know, he'd say, well, how long would it take him to get there? Could he get there in time? And I'm like, isn't this the movies? (laughs) So we designed the whole... To answer you, we designed the whole thing as if we were going to build it all and then you just cut that little bit out and then the visual effects have all of that material to base their extensions on. Hi, I'd just like to say I'm a fan of Aussie power overseas, so thank you. I knew I had to get here today. Um, I've loved all your work and a big shout-out for Australia. I remember going with Mum and just looking over at her in the theatre at one stage and she was just in another world. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. I just wondered if the green car made it into the final cut. It did. How did it look? <laughs> look. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say, not my finest hour. There have been a lot of those, though. I remember walking into the set, You like walking into the set of the, um, you know, in the belly of the elephant where um, in Moulin Rouge where Nicole Kinburn tries to seduce the Duke. And I walk in and I go who thought that thing that I think is meant to be a tiger skin rug is nothing but an inflated nylon? It was the most hideous thing I've ever looked like. It looked like an escape from, like, Scarface. It was like a bedspread out of Scarface. That's what it looked like. And it was so shiny and nylon. And so I was being yelled at to get off the set, so I... Um, just got it and I kicked it under the couch as far as I could so they wouldn't find it. Anyway, I go back, I'm running around, I'm doing other stuff. I go back, I go, better go and check to see what they're doing on set. I go back and I see Nicole Kidman rolling in this thing going, oh, oh, you know, when she's faking her orgasm for the Duke and I just go, see, there is no justice in the world. <laughs> I tried to kill that thing and it came back. And you just sit there just going, oh, not my finest moment.
3: <laughs> I think we have time for just one more question. Um, do you want to... Yes. Is there a project you're most proud of, was the question.
2: Um, I think when I look at the clothes in Australia... They're the quietest things that I've done, but the tailoring is immaculate. And it was very hard to find just that kind of heightened, harking back to the sort of matinee, idle days of these sort of sweeping outdoor epics, but at the, so it was a little heightened, but there was a kind of reality and grit to it. And very proud of the tailoring, which I think is, you know, beautiful and simple. Everything in that movie in terms of the clothes is all in what you can't see.
3: <laughs> Great. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs>
0: On the next episode of our show, we'll hear movie mogul and proud New Yorker Harvey Weinstein on how he makes one award-winning movie after another. That's next time on Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC.